So it's, it's New Year's. And there's one thing that people typically do in New Year's, right? And I'm talking about getting together with friends to celebrate. I'm not talking about the people who are crazy and courageous to go to Times Square or whatever is equivalent to that in another city or country. I'm not even talking about counting down the seconds to the new year. Right? There's one thing that everyone around the world typically does around this time, and that is we make New Year's resolutions, right? Essentially, what that is is just a promise to either ourselves or to someone else that we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to try to change something about us in hopes that something different will happen for the new year, something better. We're hopeful. Right? So like, that's why many people sign up for the gym between January to March. It's like the largest time that gym memberships spike because everyone is excited, hopeful, and full of motivation to do something because they're making a promise to be better. Now, promises in itself, they're a funny thing, aren't they? If we think about it, it's strange the reasons why we make promises. Sometimes it's because we have an agenda. Other times, it's because we want to appease somebody. For all of you guys who are married and husbands out there, why do we make promises to our wives? Because we made a mistake. Because we were stupid, right? And we're trying to do something to make sure that we get back in the good graces of the person we love, right? I, I hope so. I hope I'm the only one. My goodness. <laughs> But the reasons why we make promises are all across the spectrum. But being on the side of receiving the promise, that's the best, isn't it? We love receiving the promise. Because it's almost like a guarantee that the thing that we want, the thing that we desire, that we've been longing for, we're going to get it. It's promised to us. But church, what happens if we don't? What if we don't get that promise? What if we wait and we wait and nothing happens? What happens when we're just sitting there wondering, is this person really going to fulfill their promise or have they even forgotten or remembered at all? What happens then is that we lose trust in that person, don't we? We begin to think, oh, that person doesn't really remember, let alone care about what they promised me. We lose faith in that person. What about God? What about when it comes to God? You know, we go to church, we hear these promises. We hear these beautiful songs that we sing, your promises, you're the joy of the world. But what happens when we begin to struggle? The reality of the world hits the things that we're sitting with and singing. And it just feels like God's just so far away. What do we do? See, the story of Abraham is so important because this is exactly what he's dealing with right now. If you're not familiar with the story, Abraham is made a promise 10 years before this chapter in our book. 10 years ago, God asked Abraham to leave his home. He said, if you follow me, if you're obedient, I promise to bless you, and not just you, your entire family. In fact, my blessing is going to be so enormous that everyone that comes around you, that you treat well, will also be blessed. And so Abram's like, I don't know. Because honestly, Abraham was an incredibly wealthy person. 
He had a good thing going in his hometown. He had livestock, he had servants, he had land, he had it all. There was zero reason for him to leave. But there was one thing he didn't have that God knew that he wanted. That was a child, those children. And to sweeten the deal, God said, if you follow me and you're obedient, I will give you what your heart desires, but not just a child. I will give you so many children that your family will become a nation. And this is the one thing that Abraham desired truly, deeply. And so he said, okay, God, I will follow you. And now we think that in this pursuit of God, the journey should be good, right? As we follow and listen to God, things should be easy. But no, his story, the things that he experiences is far from fun or pleasant or easy. First, he ends up in a war-ravaged land. He's trapped between two countries fighting each other, and he's forced to fight. As he continues to travel, he's caught in a land that's famined. There's no food, no water. He's forced to move into another city. And then when he moves into the city, Egypt, Pharaoh tries to take his wife. In fact, Abraham gives his wife to, to Pharaoh. Different story, different sermon. But all to say, this journey is not easy. Following God for Abraham is not easy. One last thing to note. The promise to Abraham was to have a nation, a family behind him. The last thing that happens before our chapter is the closest thing to him that's a son is his nephew Lot. And his nephew Lot says to him, Uncle, I can't stay with you anymore. This journey is too much. And he leaves the family. He splits the family in half. So church, if you're following me, God calls Abraham to go. He says, I will bless you. Where's the blessing in this? Nothing but struggles. Nothing but challenges. The promise that God made to grow his family is actually shrinking. His family is halved now. Can you imagine what Abraham is feeling? I do. This story is so close to me because I understand what Abraham is feeling when he says he's disappointed, that he's upset with God. You see, I, I come from an incredibly broken home. My parents are, were immigrants from Vietnam, and they had one thing on their mind when they moved here, or when they uh, were thankfully sponsored to come here to America. That was to make money, to make sure my brother and I had everything we needed to survive here. And I'm incredibly thankful for the hard work that they did and the sacrifices they made. But let me tell you, church, if money and the pursuit of money is the one thing that drives you, it is a single value in your life, and everything else becomes secondary, you will have massive problems. That is just the truth. And I began to see that in my family. My parents' marriage began to unravel. They were bickering, they were fighting between my dad's side of family and my mom's side of family over money. So much so that at some point, uh, my dad had an affair with my mom's sister, my aunt. And you can imagine how awkward that is during family gatherings. But that's not all. My dad became incredibly abusive, verbally and physically, of my brother and I. 
And my brother is six years older than me. He's a big dude. He's a 6'2". That didn't stop my dad, though. And my mother, who was deeply, deeply depressed and dealing with grief, she became abusive towards us as well because she had nowhere to take her anger out on. So she took it out on my brother and myself. Eventually, my dad just disappeared. Uh, we had no idea where he went. Just kind of up and vanished. And we're trying to figure out what do we do from this point on. Uh, we owned the family business. We had no choice but to keep it going. And honestly, what we discovered is that he moved in with my aunt. And in our culture, we're so shame-based that we don't ever talk about these things. In fact, when family members would come visit from out of state or whatever, we'd pretend like this didn't happen. So my dad would come back. He'd stay in the house. And we'd have to pretend like they were living together again, like nothing was ever happening, even though everyone in my family knew that my parents were separated. Not divorced, but separated. I was 14 at the time. This all happens. So I was pretty young. And I remember the years that went by. Depression in the 90s was not diagnosable yet. It wasn't a thing. Mental health wasn't really a big thing. So no one really knew. No one took it seriously. And I grew up at church. I would go to church. I talked to people. I talked to the pastor. But you know what? Nothing the preachers would preach. Nothing my Sunday school teachers would tell me. Nothing my friends could say to me ever matched the stories that my life portrayed. Everything sounded great to them, but on this side, reality for me, where was God? I remember praying every single day, church, every single day, God, do something. Don't you love my family? Don't you love me? I remember one night, the pastor picked me up, was taking me to youth group, and we were driving by this football field. And I passed by it literally every week. And for some reason, this one particular night, there was a cross in the back of the field, a little bit far away. It had two spotlights shining on it. To this day, I don't even know if it was a cross or something else. I just remember seeing it in the back of the car, and I just thought, that's new. And immediately in that moment, I felt this presence saying, it's going to be okay, Jeff. It's going to be okay. And I took that as just, you know, if you're real, God, then maybe you are speaking to me. But, church, years and years later, nothing changed. Nothing changed. In fact, I'm wrong. Things changed. Things got worse. Much, much worse. And I began to spiral my senior year in high school. I gave up, I lost all motivation. Stopped studying, gave up playing sports, didn't care about going to school anymore. Because I felt hopeless. I felt like I had been abandoned. I felt like no one knew me or loved me or cared about me or understood my situation. This is how Abraham's feeling in this story right now. This is what's happening in his life. Ten years. Ten years of waiting, church. Can you believe that? Ten years of waiting for God to show up and does nothing. So what does he say? Verses 15, verse 1. 
or chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God says this to him, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. God tries to bring Abraham back into this conversation with him, tries to encourage him, because right before this chapter, Abraham had to go to war to save his nephew Lot. He could have potentially died and lost his entire family. So he comes back. God's trying to assure him, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to be your shield. What does Abram say in response? He says, Oh, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me nothing, no offspring. And remember, my household will be my heir. Look at the language that Abraham's using. It's very accusatory, isn't it? Look, he says, You have given me no offspring. He's blaming God. He's saying, God, this is your fault. You did this to me. He wastes no time. At least he's being honest, right? So what's God's answer? Verses 4 and 5. God reiterates his promise. But notice everything that he says is spoken in future tense. Your very own son will be your heir. Then he tells him to go outside, count the stars. If you can, so shall your offspring be. So what's God saying to Abraham? Wait. Right? He's saying to Abraham, wait. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear that response, I don't feel good about it. I'm like, ah, oh, no, God, I don't think so. I'm out. I'm done. That's exactly what I said when I was 17 years old. When I got to college my freshman year, I said, you know what? This is it. I don't think I can continue to do this anymore. This is a, a mockery. <laughs> Everything that these people are calling themselves Christians, this is a sham. So I turned my life away. In that first year in college, I turned to partying and I turned to drugs. And it was short and slow process, but I became much more addicted to harder drugs as I went. Uh, it got so bad that within a year, I was trying to get high off of anything I possibly could. Uh, I'd break open whipped cream canisters in grocery stores to suck out the nitrous oxide. Uh, I'd drink cough syrup, you know, whatever it took. I was addicted. Because the reality for me is that being high was able to soothe some of my pain. Being high kept me away from having to deal with the reality of my situation. And being high was the only way I felt any kind of form of normalcy again in my life. Because I was so depressed. And I wasn't just depressed. I was incredibly anxious that anyone that came around me, anyone that tried to get too close to me, would know how ugly of a person I was. And it only got worse because I would just throw my life and everything I had into drugs, into using. And it got so bad that I, I couldn't even hold a job. I got kicked out of school. I had to resort to selling drugs. And over time, of course, I, I got arrested. And when I was locked up and I was being processed, you know, it didn't bother me because I was just like, who cares? 
Who cares? Because when you feel hopeless, you become incredibly reckless with your decisions. And so I didn't care if I hurt myself or I hurt other people. Because honestly, my goal was to try to hurt God. So I was like, where are you? Answers nowhere. Thankfully, God did not give up on me. I remember waking up one morning on my friend's couch after partying, looking out the window, and I knew I hit rock bottom because that morning I thought to myself, life is not worth living anymore. And I remember very clearly that for some reason I could not finish that thought. I cannot tell you why, because I genuinely felt like I did not want to live anymore. And when I shared this with the people I was partying with, they were like, you're being stupid, smoke this. <laughs> great friends, great friends. So I can't tell you why. I mean, I can tell you why now, but in that moment, I can't explain to you what convinced me not to take my own life. When I left that couch that morning, I thought, I need to get my act together. I need to do something different. Went back to my school, went to talk to the dean, tried to get readmitted, tried to get my grades back up. And when I was on campus, get this, I feel like God was up to something. Everybody that I had grew up in church with, all the guys that were my best friends growing up, they also ended up at the same school. And while I was walking around campus that day, I ran into one of my good friends. His name is also Jeff. And when he saw me, I saw him, I thought, I don't want to talk to this dude because if I talk to him, he's going to want to engage with me. And remember, I feel an incredible amount of shame about what I've been doing, who I am. I don't want to talk to him. But he sees me, he comes up to me, starts talking to me, and he starts trying to catch up with me. And he invites me to come to be with our group of friends who are part of this Christian fellowship. And I'll give you a little, uh, what's it called? Not an icebreaker, but like a, a taste of a, a, I forget the word is. Ugh. Anyway, it's a spoiler. I married that dude's sister. Wow. <laughs> so that dude is now my brother-in-law. So... Jeff, my brother-in-law, is trying to convince me to come and hang out with our old group of friends. And I'm so reluctant because my fear is like, these guys are going to judge me. But I have nothing to lose. Because remember, the last group of people I hang out with told me smoke some more things. I told them I was suicidal. <laughs> so at least I was a little bit wiser. She says, okay, let's, let's, let's do this. And to my surprise, when I got there, there's five of us. They all welcome me back. They're like, hey, man, it's good to see you. I'm like, where you been? Let's go play some ball. Let's go hang out. Let's get some food. Didn't ask me any questions because they knew. <laughs> they knew about my past. They just loved me. They just welcomed me back. And what I found is over the next few months as I was going to hang out with them more and more, I just became myself again, much more comfortable. Now, they had the audacity to tell me to go back to church as well. They were like, you need to come to church with us. And I was like, nah, chill. <laughs> it took a year, but eventually I went back to the church I grew up with. 
a group at, and the new pastor there reached out to me. He saw me. He was like, Jeff, I'm seeing you every week. We should have coffee or should meet up. And back then, we didn't have cell phones. So he'd leave a voice message on my mom's answering machine every week. And I'd be like, oh, man, this guy is tenacious. And so eventually, I was like, you know what? I got, I got to get him off my back. I got to just meet with this guy. I'm going to fast forward real quick. His pa the pastor, his name is also Jeff. <laughs> Jeff and his wife, May, became parents to me. They walked me through what it was like to actually care and love for your children. Not only that, they taught me how to forgive myself, forgive my parents, and forgive all those that hurt me. And they forced me to get counseling so I can break this addiction that I had with drugs, so I can get clean so that I can think soberly and normally again. They poured into me in a short three period of years and what I was missing for 14 to 18 years of my life. Because they loved me. They saw something in me that was worth investing in, which is why I'm here today. That I can stand before you and tell you that God was still taking care of me even though I was running away from him. That God made me a promise that things are going to be okay. The one thing, the one thing that I could not do, church, and the one thing that I'd like to share with you today is that all I needed to do was learn to trust God a little bit more. To believe. Verse 6 in our passage says this. And he believed the Lord. This is Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, as in God, counted it to him as righteousness. Does that sound right to you? Abraham believed in God, and God said, that's righteousness. That's an act of righteousness. I don't know about you. When I think about righteousness, and I think about those kinds of acts, I don't think about believing God as an act of righteousness. I think about what y'all do here as an act of righteousness. Feed the poor. Help each other get clean. Love each other. Reach out to the community and the neighborhood. That's acts of righteousness. But believing in God, that's righteousness? That's too easy. Right? But is it though? Is believing in God that easy all the time? Sometimes trusting and believing in God is the hardest thing we will ever do, ever. Because when the circumstances and challenges of our lives come and over waves, over waves and bombard us, if we do not have a relationship, if we do not hear the voice of God, understand that he loves us unconditionally, if we do not, have a conversation with God regularly so that we reminded that he cares. Then church, believing will be one of the hardest things we will ever do in our lives. It's hard to believe. And that's why God says this is counted to Abraham as righteousness. Even when he messes up, even when Abraham makes mistakes, Abraham still chooses to believe. I'm going to close with just the end of my story because there's more. You know, before I said that my, my aunt 
and my dad had an affair. And I hated my aunt. I learned to forgive my dad. I learned to forgive my mom. But oof, it was a struggle to forgive my aunt. Because she destroyed my family. But can you imagine what my mom had to deal with? I remember when I was 14, I was praying, God, do something, fix my family, heal the brokenness, right? And God said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Well, my aunt gave her life to Christ about 10 years ago now. And it was because my mom, who also came to faith, 15, 16 years ago, learned to forgive her own sister and never held it over her and was always reaching out to her. And her entire side of family, all her sister-in-laws, the brothers, my grandmother, all love my aunt the same way unconditionally. Now I want us to, to notice this because it's important. The same reason why I came back to God because others love me unconditionally without judgment, is the same reason why my aunt came back or was introduced and discovered God. It's because my family loved her unconditionally despite her mistakes, her sin, the way she almost destroyed our family, and yet loved her and welcomed her back unconditionally. I remember when Erica and I first got married 12 years ago or 11 years ago, we're sitting in the back of my uncle's minivan, and I was just watching my uncle and my mom, my two aunts, and they're all just like chattering and laughing and making jokes like they were little kids. And I had never experienced that in my entire life. That had never happened. Growing up, these kinds of celebrations, these joyous moments didn't happen. And it's because we didn't know what the joy of the Lord was like back then. All we understood was brokenness, pain, suffering, unkept promises. And yet here we were 15 years later, church, 15 years later, for me to see that God was keeping his promise. It took 15 years, church. Is there something today that you are holding on to? that you feel like God has made you a promise about? Is there something that you feel like God has forgotten about? Is there something in your heart right now in this moment that's just coming up to the surface right now? Where you're wondering, God, are you still holding this for me? Or am I on my own? I'm gonna invite us to close our eyes. For those of us who don't know who this Jesus person is, I pray and I hope that my story is one of many that you encounter to show you that God is real. And that God has a promise for you. That he sees you, knows you, he loves you unconditionally despite anything that you have done or continue to do. That he wants you to be part of this family. For those of us who know Jesus, who are part of this family, 
I have one question for us this morning, a challenge. What do we want more? Do we want God or do we just want God's promises? So Lord, we just ask that as we begin to step into this new year, God, Oh, we need you. You have have to come into this new year and make a way for us. We long to see you move in ways that we have expected. We long to see the things that you will move, the mountains that you will move for us, God. Moreover, Lord, we just pray that your presence would just grow deeper into each of us as we step into this 2024 period. God, help us to rededicate ourselves. Help us to seek your face first, not just your promises. Help us to see that everything else comes secondary as long as we're just sitting at your feet. And we pray, Lord, may your hands and your arms embrace each of us for those that just need a hug. Those of us just need to know that you are there, that we are not alone. And so God, have your way. In your name, Father, Son, Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.